Mm. What is it that you're knitting, Beryl? Um, it's a shawl. <laughs> and they're knitting. Beryl, this Very isn't nice. the shawl that I was knitting. I finished that. That's here. I know. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my goodness, that's finished. Well done. Wow. It's huge. I haven't blocked it yet. Ah, get off. And oh. what's that you've got there, Maggie? Pardon? Was it Maggie? Were you holding up something? Yeah, it's an art it's an art a snood, a snood. Fantastic. Brilliant. Right. So I'm going to put you all on mute now so we can crack on with everything. We're about two, four minutes past. Uh, so, as ever, good morning, everybody. And it's amazing to see so many of you here as usual. Good morning to Archers, Academic Archers, Research Fellows, Old and New. Um, we're going to have, again, two papers today, absolute barnstormers of presenters, as ever. We'll do one paper, then the Q&A, then the next paper, then the Q&A, and lots of general chit-chat in between, as usual. Um, I've just put you all on mute now on your microphones, because every little tiny bit of noise gets picked up. So, as usual. If you want to make a comment or have a question, you can use the chat function in Zoom to do that. Or there's a little button there that you can uh, put your hand up and that should alert me as the meeting host and I can come to you then so you can ask your question there too. And then the presenters will share their screens with us. You don't need to do anything. It doesn't change your computer in any way. Just sit back and watch, basically. Um, thank you to everybody who's donated or been a Patreon as well. That's just amazing and heartwarming and so generous of you all. And you'll all get a pin badge, an academic artist pin badge, when things get back to whatever that next normal is going to be for us. And thank you also to those of you that have um, responded to my call for help with my research for the next book as well. It's really lovely. And I've had over 80 responses, which is a huge amount of data to get through. But it's amazing. Thank you all so very much. Um, and we've had a lot of people as well wanting to join our Facebook group. But a lot of people who aren't answering the questions. And so if you're asking friends or saying to friends you should join this group, can you please get them? To answer those questions because otherwise it's an automatic no it's the only way that we've got to filter out those people that might not be academicing <laughs> in the way that we want them to be or engaged in that way so if you can if you're recommending somebody if you could just ask them to respond to those questions that really helps us with all the administration of that as well so, uh, Nicola, where are you on my screen? There you are. I'm going to unmute Nicola now and we'll hand over to Nicola for her introduction. The introductions as well, we've got up on the website. So if you go to the Saturday Omnibus page on the academicarches.net website, that's where you'll see the podcast recordings from this. Um, and the, there's links in there to the original films from the conferences for people and we've also got Nicola's intros up there as well as a veritable work of, of, uh, of art there too. So over to Nicola now to introduce our papers. Very good, thanks Cara. So firstly we're going to hear from Professor Versalotti 
Tim Versalotti directs the Polling Institute at Western New England University. He previously uh, did similar work at Rutgers and Elon University. And he combines his very serious research interests in sophology with being a committed Anglophile and, of course, Archer's obsessive. Tim uses his comprehensive Archer's knowledge on his university's London summer programme, where he uses Ambridge as a lens for both British media and politics and national identity in the UK. So he is secretly studying us all the time. Tim's been with us since the British Library Conference and oddly seems to manage to combine research trips to the UK with academic archers most years. This paper is a revision of a wonderful paper on political participation connecting the functioning of civil society organisations and their formalisation into political arenas, something that you know that we're very interested in. Um, so I'm hope, really hoping that he's going to be able to tell us what Councillor Grundy has been up to since she appears wholly focused on her personal life rather than her civic responsibilities. Tim followed up on this paper with a second piece in Reading this year, turning to the social capital exerted through the building of political dynasties. Tim is a firm favourite with the academic archers crowd. And as he's an American and a man, he helps us to tick our diversity boxes with great aplomb. <laughs> Over to you. Wow. <laughs> Thank you very much for that introduction. Yeah, this is one of the few groups where I'm in affirmative action hire, but uh, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, so I, I have revised a paper uh, that I did at the British Library two years ago, where I looked at uh, political participation in Ambridge. Um, I have since built on that. Uh, before the Reading Conference, I came about four days earlier and spent that time at the written archives uh, and went back and looked at the topical inserts for every national election from 1955 uh, up through 2006 when the written archives finish. And so I've got actually a couple hundred pages of scripts that I had collected on that trip that I haven't gone through yet. And don't worry, we're not going through them today. That is a task for the summer. But I can say some of the patterns that I've observed in the more recent uh, inserts about elections really have their roots going way back to that first uh, evidence I could find in 1955. The archives go back to 1951, but that first year, they're not entirely complete. And there was an election in fall 51 that I haven't, haven't been able to track down, but um, I have some other possibilities. What I want to do now is uh, go through the uh, PowerPoint that I've updated from 2018. I'm going to share my screen. And we, we've got some audio clips, and fingers crossed that these will work. Um, all right. So I have to say this, um, you, uh, the politics of the UK have really cooperated well uh, with my research interests. Uh, you all have had, by my count, six national elections in the space of 10 years. I'm leaving out uh, the um, alternative voting 
referendum that happened in 2014. I haven't added that to the collection, but I will get to that as well. Someone pointed that out to me after 2018. What I'm looking at here are five elections in the space of 2010 to the most recent one in December. And uh, this is the title, Paths to the Polling Station at the Village Hall. Uh, uh, there's Aziz, uh, Lillian has uh, ridden him over to go cast her vote. Uh, these are my research questions. To what extent are patterns of political socialization represented at the, uh, on the archers? Uh, my uh, tile of the groups is covering <laughs> what I can see on the side of the screen. Do social networks of family and friends motivate the residents of Ambridge to vote? And does this mirror the dynamics that are well established in the voting behavior literature? So why does this matter? Uh, the uh, family and peer dynamics that the, uh, we, the listeners, experience may give some insights into how we get involved in politics. And it may inspire uh, listeners to get involved as well. And what I'm finding is, although this may be a sidelight, and this may be more a function of the civic nature of the BBC than this program in particular, but by depicting these relationships, the show promotes good civic practices, much in the way that it designs sound farming practices. So let me say a little bit about this, uh, the psychology and the social aspects of political socialization. As you can see on the screen, for, from the psychology perspective, it's the process through which children and adolescents form their views of the role citizens ought to play. Uh, children internalize the standards of their parents and other adults in their lives, observing to what extent they're involved in civic life. Uh, and they also, uh, very, in a very simple way, absorb the norms of behavior through conversations with their parents about politics. These may begin around the kitchen table and extend to other uh, 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 venues as well as children grow up. Now, there are social factors involved as well. Um, again, households provide the setting in which we can discuss politics and also uh, we know from uh, literature on voting in the UK, family members can provide companionship in the act of voting. So parents and adult children uh, going to the polling station where the adult children may cast a vote for the first time. It's also a public act. Uh, this is uh, something where you assert your role as a citizen, your standing in the community, and you get some social rewards from that. Abstaining or declining to cast votes, those uh, can bring sanctions as well from your community. And uh, as uh, Betsy Sinclair, she's a, a political scientist in the United States, writes, put simply, individuals do not want to disappoint their friends, and this is how politics are contagious. So here are a couple of hypotheses that I've been putting to the test by looking at how the Archers addresses national elections. Um, my prediction, individuals coming from families in which elders are engaged are more likely to internalize those norms while growing up and also participate in politics. And then 
an individual is also more likely to be involved if there's positive peer pressure, if they win approval from their friends and from their family for doing so and risk disapproval for not participating. But the individual has to care about this. And the contrast that's set up in the more recent elections uh, are uh, the David Archers versus the Grundys. The uh, David Archers, actually beginning with Jill, uh, uh, prize political participation and civic engagement. The Grundys are somewhat um, uh, skeptical about the value of it and question whether it's really worth the time and effort to do that. So originally I looked at four, uh, well, no, now five, uh, in that period from May uh, 6th of 2010, uh, when Gordon Brown went to the nation up through December 12th of this past year when Boris Johnson went to the nation. Uh, what I did was uh, go through actually the recorded um, episodes, uh, the omnibus, uh, uh, my Latin is rusty, omnibi, of um, uh, the, the weeks leading up to this. And what I did was two things. I looked at when the election was called, generally five or six weeks out, and then the period around the election. And there's kind of an interesting experiment in May of 2015. It's the one and only time the Fixed Term Parliaments Act actually works. Um, the, that act was passed after 2010 that said no longer does the prime minister have uh, the opportunity to call an election when it's most politically advantageous. We're going to fix it so that the first Thursday in May, five years out from the previous election, that will be the election. Now, there were some loopholes which have been used in 2017 and 2019, but that 2015 election was really the first time the script writers had the benefit of knowing fairly far in advance, well, more than five to six weeks in advance, knowing when the election would be, and it allowed them to build a, a little bit of a storyline around it, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, now, uh, the politics uh, of the archers, the writers have said in various interviews over the years um, that while they do want to situate the program uh, in uh, issues that are occurring, uh, it's not issue driven. And they're very careful in terms of the politics of the characters. Uh, what I found in my uh, looking through the inserts over the years, it's pretty clear Pat Archer uh, favors labor uh, she was quite uh, euphoric when Tony Blair won his um, first election in 1997. Uh, Linda Snell uh, identifies with the Green Party in the 1992 election on election night. She muses that perhaps she should stand. And uh, uh, Robert says, well, I'd really miss you if you spent all that time in Westminster. And so goes the political career of Linda. But, um, and uh, 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 Joe Archer's alter ego, Patty Green, says she's fairly sure Joe is a Lib Dem, but uh, we don't see that necessarily in the uh, uh, scripts. Um, but, and I give this example here, the debate over genetically modified crops. If something presents itself, uh, the scriptwriters will work it in. And we've seen it uh, with the coercive control legislation and the travails of Helen 
And uh, we're seeing a bit of it now in the uh, uh, human trafficking issue and Philip Moss. So let's start uh, with the 2010 general election. Um, it, it was called in early April, this was the last time prior to the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, uh, Fixed Term Parliaments Act, where the prime minister has the prerogative to call and Gordon Brown calls it, the queen grants her uh, permission. And uh, so two days after the start of the campaign, we have this conversation about political participation with uh, Jim Lloyd and Joe Grundy. Um, I, I'm a newbie at putting audio in uh, PowerPoint, so uh, let's, uh, let, let's hope for the best here. Team, do you want to turn the volume up on your computer? Uh, seemed like the volume was a bit loud there. Would that be correct? It's too low, so we couldn't hear it. Oh, too low. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, here, let's try it again. Any better? No. Don't worry, we've got the script there. Ah, uh, so no good with the sound there, Cara? Nope. No, unfortunately not. Okay, well, yes, we do have the scripts. I won't even try to reenact them, but we can go through the text. So what we see here, uh, Jim Lloyd, and he does this a couple in a couple of election cycles, talks about the value of democracy, rooted in part, no doubt, his background as a classicist. Uh, Joe Grundy, uh, convinced it's pointless, although I will say there's an election back in the 80s where Joe does cast a vote. So his character, perhaps he gets more cynical over time. And on polling day, he's at the polling station, but selling his Grundy merchandise. Um, so in 2015, here's where, uh, with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, uh, the scriptwriters got to plan a storyline of sorts, and it uh, rests on Pip Archer's first chance to vote. Um, in an episode that aired the day before the election, Pip and David and uh, Adam are at the Hunt Landowners dinner at Grey Gables. Pitt gets into an argument with the father of a university classmate about gay marriage and her cousin, Adam Macy, who's across the room, and David witnesses the confrontation from a distance. Um, let's try the audio one more time, and Cara, just let me know uh, whether we can hear it. And if we can't, I'll just go through the dialogue. Oh, okay. It's okay though, because it's only Pip, so we don't really want to hear Pip. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm in team. I'm on team Pip. I think she gets a raw deal, <laughs> but uh, uh, we can uh, we can save that for the Q and A. But David uh, uses this as a teachable moment. Uh, he had apparently. Uh, 
been talking about politics and the upcoming election and saying this is your opportunity to uh, speak out about uh, the things that you feel strongly about. Uh, the next day, it's uh, sheep shearing uh, time at Brookfield. Pip, Ed, Jazzer, and Toby Fairbrother are shearing sheep at Brookfield. They head out uh, to the bull once they're finished, and Pip asks if she can stop at the polling station. Jazzer has never voted before, although he registered at the behest of Jim Lloyd, our uh, guardian of democracy. And so he goes with her to cast his vote as well. They get their ballot papers, uh, but for, as first-time voters, they're not quite sure what to do. Helen arrives and talks them through the process. And here we see the dialogue. Um, Helen walks them over uh, to a booth. Uh, they have their ballot papers. Jazzer says he's not familiar with any of the candidates. And Pip says, but you can see the parties. And Helen says, surely you know which party you prefer. Um, Jazzer, uh, in his way, lets us know that's not the kind of party he's thinking about. Uh, so uh, he puts an X in the box. Uh, they cast their votes. And there they are, uh, with some positive reinforcement from Helen, engaging in this public act of civic uh, responsibility. The next day, Ed, here we have the Grundy side of the story. Ed recounts the story to his father and grandfather. Uh, Pip dragged Jazzer in. He ended up voting. Uh, who did he vote for? I don't know. Uh, first time for everything. Joe is a little surprised when he says this. You didn't vote yourself then, Edward. Nah, I'm not really interested in all that. Uh, Joe talks about that beardy fellow has got a lot to answer for. And Eddie uh, thinks it's Karl Marx, but he's referring to Russell Brand, whom my reading tells me had said to folks in 2015, there's not a dimes, but a difference between David Cameron and Ed Miliband. Don't vote. He later uh, retracted that and endorsed uh, Ed Miliband. Um, Joe says, you don't vote. You've got no right to complain. So it's interesting. See, although Joe Grundy would like to make us think He's not in favor of political participation. He actually harbors uh, some notion that that's a good thing. Brexit, uh, actually, I don't have sound for this one. Um, uh, we've seen this over time uh, that the characters choose sides of a sort on Brexit, but it's very subtle. The BBC, uh, I suspect, not wanting to uh, uh, be accused of using the archers for proselytizing. So David uh, speaks as the voice of Remain. Adam advocates the leave position. In other contexts, Ruth is also uh, someone who advocates leave. Um, when polling day arrives, now it's Josh Archer's turn to cast his first vote. Uh, first, he's got to sit an exam at college. And then uh, uh, David says, well, don't forget to vote while you're out and about. So here's the dialogue. Um, Josh, a, a little less aware, uh, shall we say, of uh, public events. Um, David says, here's your first chance to do this. Josh says, yeah, yeah. And David uh, says, it's uh, an important decision, one of the biggest uh, we'll ever make. Um, Josh uh, says, OK, I know. Um, and again, I asked this at the conference, and I, we never know. We never find out. I do wonder if Josh ever made it to the polling station. 
Um, and then we've got uh, the residents of Ambridge uh, were caught off guard uh, the following April when Theresa May uh, called for a snap election. Um, I used this clip at the conference. I just love this clip. I'm, a, I, I'm skeptical that you'll hear the audio, but it's Brenda from Bristol, and I just can't watch this clip enough, um, where she just expresses shock and outrage, uh, maca, mild outrage, at the thought of yet another national election, the third in three years. Why indeed, why does she need to do it? Um, so uh, the next day after uh, the prime minister calls the election, uh, there is a topical insert, Ed and Emma talk about uh, the upcoming general election. And again, um, we see the differences here. Ed doesn't seem all that excited about it. Emma, however, daughter of a parish councilor, future parish councillor. I can't recall whether she had, she may have already won election at this point in the storyline. She views it as an opportunity to have their voices heard. So only two brief references to the actual election. And this, I did find this over the years from the 1950s onward. When there were major events, there were lengthy uh, uh, topical inserts. So when Margaret Thatcher won her first term in 1979, when Tony Blair won his first term in 1997. There was some fairly detailed uh, dialogue inserted into the episodes. This one is pretty, um, uh, pretty sparse. Elizabeth talks about uh, voting. Uh, Freddie, who's too young to vote, uh, goes in uh, one ear and out the other, cuts out of his maths exam, heads off to the uh, Isle of Wight music festival with Johnny. And while they're out there says, no one's interested in the general election result. What more could a young person want? Uh, so there you go. Next day though, this has to be my favorite uh, election uh, insert. Uh, it, the, the show begins this way with uh, Jennifer and Lillian talking and you see the dialogue here. Oh, Lillian, I know, I know, complete and utter chaos. What a shambles. Uh, uh, Theresa May had gone into the election, the election with a majority of 17 and comes out with a minority government where she's got to enter a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP. Um, I honestly can't believe it. Uh, it was impossible to foresee. The thinking at the time was there would be another election before the end of the year that May could not get the Brexit agreement through without going back to the voters again. Um, Tim, we just, just realized, and, and um, when Nick, one of the Nicolas services as well, perhaps if you unplug your headphones, we'll Ooh. be able to hear the audio. Okay. Let's just try that. Yeah, let's try that. Uh, now, I had my headphones on, so I wasn't waking the household at this early hour, but my wife has come in and gotten her coffee, so. <laughs> so you're safe. Yeah. You, you, would, you would need to unplug them because they'll be receiving the sound. Yeah. So you need to stop them receiving sound and the sound will okay. hopefully let's, come out uh, Let's give this a shot here.
Is the volume up? We can hear something, but not. Okay. There we go. Put the volume right up, I think, is the best thing. No. Yeah, still no point. Uh, oh, hold on a second. No. Okay. Don't worry. Okay. So um, we can see the dialogue here. I can't bear to think we'll have to go through all this again. Uh, further, Jennifer, well, you can't deny he was very exciting, full of great ideas and strategies. And are they discussing Jeremy Corbyn? No, it's Dean, the um, uh, ne'er do well contractor who had messed up the renovation of the master bath in the dower house. Lillian has sacked him, the bathroom is in disarray. Lillian uh, says, you know, I'm beginning to wish I had never started this. And uh, Jennifer says, well, I'm thinking Mrs. May is feeling quite the same today. <laughs> love it, love it. So, um, we fast forward to fall of 2019. The prime minister can't get the Brexit agreement through the commons and uh, finally convinces uh, the Lib Dems to join the conservatives in voting for an election. And then it just cascades and a majority uh, coalesces around this. And they set the election for December 12. Um, the act receives royal assent and there's a topical insert on the November 1 2019 episode, and as an American, I had to do a little bit of research listening to this dialogue. There are actually three topical references here. The other two referring to the final of the Rugby World Cup the next day, and then the remaining, two of the remaining contenders on Strictly Come Dancing. So Brian, in the end, it will probably come down to Youngs and de Klerk, who, perform, who performs better on the day, making reference to uh, members of the English and South African national rugby squads. Eddie says, Clarice got a hot, soft spot for AJ and Saffron. Uh, I think they're doing a salsa this weekend. So these are folks uh, on Strictly. Uh, Eddie, we may be talking at cross purposes. I didn't have you down as a dancing fan. Uh, it's Clarice, never misses a week. Dad liked watching with her and all. Uh, they're speaking now, this is shortly after uh, the death of Joe Grundy. Uh, Brian, now did he never lost his eye for a pretty woman? I'll bet if he were still here, he would have sweet talked Sabrina into ordering a turkey yesterday. Sabrina Thwaite is very unhappy about the loss of the village hall on the 12th. Oh, polling day. Yes, they're having to cancel the last Pilates class or something. Uh, Brian, again, articulating uh, support for uh, uh, political engagement through elections, says let's hope this sorts things out. Um, Eddie uh, repeats the Grundy refrain, uh, one lot's as bad as another. Uh, Brian gets his wish, uh, as you recall if you were watching, and I, the uh, BBC World uh, News was airing the BBC coverage, so I was watching 
here as well. Promptly at 10 o'clock your time, exit poll comes out, it's pretty clear uh, what the outcome is. And so Justin Elliott and Martin Gibson talk about the election results. The next day, this is at the BL board meeting, right before they strong arm Phoebe and company into signing uh, the rewilding Ambridge agreement. Any news on Brian? He's been delayed, apparently. Oh. Uh, hmm, he wasn't up watching the live coverage, I hope. This is a consistent theme going back to 1955 of characters staying up. Uh, in the 55 uh, insert, it was getting results by phone, uh, and then later it's watching on uh, television. Um, but staying up late, being very uh, sleep deprived the next day. And Martin says, a sensible man would have nipped off to bed uh, once the exit polls came in. Um, I need my beauty sleep, Justin, uh, quite well, we have a decision. The country's definitively chosen a leader, so that's probably good for Boychester land indeed. Um, so the topical inserts for 2019 are brief. They're really not uh, story-oriented, um, but uh, uh, overall, we see that uh, there is a lot of evidence uh, to support these hypotheses about the psychological and social value of political participation. So uh, what is the evidence that we see? Individuals coming from families in which elders are engaged in civic life are more likely to internalize those norms. Uh, evidence and support, PIP in 2015, Ed failing to vote in 2015, Emma, expressing enthusiasm, Pip and Emma, both children of parish councillors, Pip, a granddaughter of a parish councillor as well, Jill has served on the council. Evidence against Josh, Josh Archer likely failing to vote on the Brexit referendum and Freddie uh, expressing disdain in 2017. And then that positive social peer pressure um, do we see evidence for that? We do in the 2015 storyline with Pip and Jazzer casting their first votes with positive reinforcement, Pip uh, from her father and Pip and Jazzer from Helen. Um, Joe Grundy not voting, uh, not viewing, not caring about that positive peer reinforcement. And the same with Josh Archer, not really concerned about his father's approval in 2016. So, uh, uh, wrapping it up, um, the Archers depicts forms of political participation as fulfilling a social contract. The community is likely to be stronger when citizens participate. Jim Lloyd is, uh, in the later years, a very strong um, uh, spokesman for this point of view. Uh, the message is woven in. Uh, this uh, makes the uh, Archers prescriptive about civic life, much as it is about uh, good agricultural practices as well. So that was that. Um, I will... Thank you so much, Tim, that was wonderful. Something that you said there, a ne'er-do-well contract, that obviously somebody in the script writing team has really got burned by having their house done up because they really don't like contractors, do they? We've got Dean and now <laughs> something obviously went very wrong with somebody's kitchen extension at some point. And they I think builders in general are sort yeah. of seen as, seen as a very dubious class of people. <laughs> <laughs>
there was a lot of commentary in the in the chat as well about just the time span of this and as a as a lockdown reflection that you know a week is a long time in politics like a minute is a long time in politics at the moment and it's these elections seem such a long time ago now when actually they really were they're still fairly recent uh, uh, a lot of them yeah yes yeah, well it's been a great time to study politics in this area and we've seen it before uh, in 1964 there were two elections in the space of a year 1974 there were two elections in the space of a year and so uh, there's a little bit of uh, voter fatigue that the, uh, gets reflected in the scripts in those periods as well that's uh, part of my work uh, schedule for the summer is to go through those more carefully and uh, expand on this. I don't know where it's going. This is more a uh, pleasant obsession than a very directed research project, but uh, there's a lot to work with here. Mm. I think the pleasant obsession is something we can, we can all relate to rather than a research project necessarily. <laughs> a very pleasant uh, obsession. Nicola Lloyd wants to ask a question. Are you able to, can you unmute yourself or Cara, can you unmute Nicola Lloyd? I can unmute herself, that's probably easier because I've got so many people on the screen. Nicola. Yeah. Hi, hi, yeah, just, I just wondered, uh, Tim, whether there's anything that uh, is broadcast in America um, that could um, be a useful comparison to... The uh, Simpsons. The Simpsons, Well, yes. That's been yes. done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's, um, it's interesting in terms of incorporating real world events into a, a specialized world. I will point out my university is in Springfield, Massachusetts, but the general consensus is, and Gary might be interested in this, that it is Springfield, Vermont, about 40 minutes north of me as we speak, that is the model for the Springfield and the Simpsons. It's claimed by many communities, I'm not entirely sure why, but I suppose it would be a good source of tourism. In terms of radio drama, there's really nothing. Uh, that genre has pretty much disappeared in America. When I was a kid, there was a nightly mystery program on the CBS radio network that I could listen to as I went to sleep. But generally speaking, we really have no radio drama uh, of, of this nature. Uh, plenty of drama of other kinds on our radio right now, but not this. Thank you. Anybody else got a question? Suddenly everybody's shy. Um, yeah, I mean, so Amy's just putting something in the chat. Um, in fact, Gareth, Amy's got a question. Gareth, do you want to unmute yourself and ask a question? Thanks, Cara. I was interested by what Tim was saying about people learn civic engagement from their parents. Because one of the problems that parish councils across England have is the majority of councillors are actually over 50, with the result that their children have already grown up and left home. So the actual corpus of parish councillors we've got aren't socialising their children about civic engagement because they don't stop, start doing it until they've stopped having parental responsibilities. Mm. And that means we've always got a problem getting anybody under 50 
Stanford Council. Does that kind of fit with the, the research you've been looking at, Tim? Well, I, I think about involvement in local government, and I think you're onto something there, Gareth. Um, and I see that in local government in the United States as well, even though for the most part, these elected positions in smaller communities are, are unpaid uh, volunteer work, much like a parish council. The people who do have the most time tend to be older with children who are, if not grown and gone, adolescents and more self-sufficient. And uh, uh, I see that here as well. You can't underestimate the power of grandparents. Amy had mm -hmm. uh, made some reference to grandparents as role models and uh, being able to uh, intercede with their children, our grandchildren, when they reach voting age. And now that Ben Archer has achieved the uh, age of voting, I am curious. They won't have an opportunity other than a parish council until uh, 2024, you hope. Uh, but um, uh, uh, there, uh, who knows, we may see uh, some grandparent to grandchild socialization occurring there as well. Claire Asprey's made a point as well, the loss of children to parish councils is also due to the fact that so many can't afford housing where they grew up, so they'll mm. be moving away. So there's that disconnect there as well, so not just through the generation, but then geographically too. Gosh, that's interesting. So in terms of this gendered uh, theme, Lou Gillies has said that someone, that someone in their area had stood as a young woman and was really bullied and it was a horrible thing. Um, and also how far Emma's civic participation turned out to be sort of, in the end, relatively shallow because you know, we haven't heard anything about it for a long time, but that was around the affordable housing issue. Claire's kind of, you know, um, you know, area of interest. And I just wonder if they've missed a trick there because um, the possibility for younger women to be more politically active in, in their communities, in for, I mean, as, as my stuff argues, they're very, very active in terms of the informal structures and networks. But when it comes to, um, you know, hard power rather than soft, they're, they're, they're less visible. Yeah. It's, the parish, it's the parish council in my mum's village that finally has got round to, saying, to, to do shopping for people and get food parcels ready. Which does, it's like the old helping the old though, which is a little bit contrary to government advice. But I was wondering in what we have coming up, if the parish council will have a role in that and if that will be something that Emma, as a younger person, could possibly feel a responsibility with. Right. Yeah, the Emma storyline on Parish Council started off in a promising way because she was styling herself as a voice for the voiceless, young mm. uh, uh, people, uh, people with children, working class people who didn't have a role on the council. But then it morphed into this uh, act of self-interest uh, relying on being there when the uh, Beechwood uh, as a project was being uh, put together and trying to uh, get in there and get housing. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I'm curious about her moving plans. I, uh, she moves out of the community, she'd have to give up her seat, uh, but uh, who knows? There are a lot of changes about to come. She might be moving into the village hall <laughs> rather than <laughs> Ambridge Hall to the village hall. Nicola Field has a question, and then I think we should move on because we're looking at time. Nicola, do you want to ask a question? 
Yes, thank you very much. It's my first time here. It's terribly exciting. Um, <laughs> these are sort of big questions, which maybe I wanted to kind of throw out to the whole community in a way. Um, I noticed, Tim, that in your talk, you talked about political engagement, but that was really focused on elections and voting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm not against that. You know, I did once stand in an election for a local council, but I'm sort of in terms of political activism, I think that this is a very interesting kind of theme in the arches as well around um, people taking political uh, activism seriously, um, you know, whether it's throwing flapjacks or destroying GM crops or, uh, or fighting Nazis, you know, which we've had as well in, in the arches. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm interested if anyone, because it's my first time here, I'm not sure if that's something that you know, political activism and that there was a parallel made with the simpsons now the simpsons has got a left-wing open left-wing bias whereas the archers coming from the state broadcasting is sort of horribly trying to be neutral all the time but of course upholding a kind of tory paradigm um in its sort of trying to be neutral all the time um and one of the things i don't know if anyone else ever notices the idea of claiming benefits just seems to be completely off the agenda. It's so middle class. So you have people like in terrible housing crises and not being able to pay the rent and the rent's going up and Oliver's got to keep the rent down as an act of charity. Why doesn't anyone ever suggest to the Grundies that they might try applying for housing benefit? Um, and I just wondered what anyone thinks about all this really. It's very intrigues me. Like, when Claire, Claire A, you're looking like you might want to speak down there. You have to unmute yourself. I was just furiously typing a message. Um, <laughs> the, the local housing allowance for the Borsetshire area would very likely fall far short of what the rent is the Grundies are paying, and they'd only get partial housing benefit because of, an in, uh, of income anyway. So uh, the chances of it making any difference to their ability to pay Oliver are minimal, in my view. But obviously we don't know what they're charged, we don't know what the local housing allowance rates are, and we don't know what their income is or how much of their declared income is, which I suspect is different from their actual income. So um, it's very difficult to, to run it through a uh, benefit calculator. But in practice, um, I think that because, although in the current crisis, they've raised the uh, local housing allowance rate back up to a third of local rents, average rents. Uh, that still will fall way, way short of what the market rate is for Ambridge. So, so just so you know, Nicola, Claire's, Claire's done a paper in the past on the affordable housing crisis in Ambridge. That's her specialism and that kind of... Um, but yes, yeah, somebody else saying Clary's a waspy woman. We never hear about that. That's right. I mean, the, uh, the, the chapter that I did in Gossip, which was about women's work, was about different models for gendered participation in the life of the village. Um, and that's why it bleeds so well into Tim and then also Amy's paper. So Amy's, I think, somewhere lurking around here. She took what, um, on the chat was saying about grandparental um, uh, voting behaviour reflections. Um, so we should move on because 
appreciate that there is a brilliant so nicola field i think you just auditioned to do a paper next year by asking those questions they were yeah, brilliant and i cannot wait for that conversation that uh, eddie grundy will be having about why damn it why didn't i actually declare all my income so i've got a bigger ask of the government to make here with our the self-employment help but you mentioned flat jacks and yes. so that's a brilliant segue now into into charlotte charlotte if you want to ready and nicola if you want to do your intro right so my intro was somewhat um uh handicapped by the fact that i don't know what you're doing for a job now charlotte so you have to tell us but i can tell you about charlotte's um long association with academic archers so this paper is going to be fear fecklessness and freddie and philip policing the crime wave but the original paper was fear fecklessness and flapjacks and it was full of dark portents about criminality which i must say have been largely borne out in the village ever since the crime wave in the title refers to the fact that there have indeed been some dodgy goings on recently. Not just Robin Helen, but Matt Splat. It is yet to come out, of course, that the sainted Nick was the perpetrator of the hit and run that left Matt Crawford for dead. Jill's completely outlandish escapade into criminal damage with a flapjack. Freddie, the Trustafarian drug dealer. And Ed, whose misadventures of the Timothy have had lasting repercussions, certainly for his family all have felt the long arm of the law as have philip and gav in this horrible modern slavery slavery storyline so jay cartwright who plays um who plays harrison is a firm academic archer's fave um have you seen him his arrival in the village also created quite a stir in the wi but while we await his cameo on rupaul's drag race with his spice girls impression impersonation <coughs> settled very neatly into cricket captaincy and is even a member of the very extended Archer clan with Kenton as his stepfather-in-law. Charlotte's love for, I mean research interest in Harrison, was fully extended into her other paper for us, Burns, 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 when the village policeman comes around for our 2019 conference in Sheffield, in an absolutely blatant pitch for the Samantha um samantha walton cider with grundy award for best title we could not resist and she was awarded this hotly contested prize charlotte has left the academy now and describes this award as the high point of her academic career she was also an early adopter of the knitting craze that has swept through academic archers at all our gatherings <laughs> okay here we go Share. Ooh. There we are. Can you hear me? Yep. Lovely. Okay. Um, so this is this is a mashup of the the 2018 and 2019 papers that I gave. And once again, thank you to uh, Tyne and Ware Archives for the photographs. Um, so I now work for um, a police force in the northeast of England. I can't think which one it might be. Um, and even though I am now within the police family, I still can't get access to people such as mugshots or even to their HR files, which of course I wouldn't do because that would be entirely, can you not hear me? Uh, that would be entirely, entirely against the police and code of ethics. 
um, that both Harrison and I abide by. So two years ago, I said that Ambridge were seen to be suffering from a crime wave, from the theft of farm vehicles, to fraud, to drug supply, to cider selling, uh, to tax evasion, which perhaps somebody might come back to in, in future years, and also the, the wholesale poisoning of the AM. Now, until very recently, we had a period of declining crime rates in the in the UK since the mid 1990s to uh, just a couple of years ago. Crime rates went down year on year on year. And I, again, I want to reassure you that things aren't always what they seem. This is in a positive way, but also in a negative way. We can't always rely on the Borchester Echo for reporting crime in an evenly handed manner. Who'd have thought it? So the Office for National Statistics and DEFRA regularly release crime rates um, for rural populations. And they say that in, in predominantly rural village to a similar size of Ambridge, we'd expect to see less than half a robbery every year. We'd see around 20 incidents of violence against a person. Um, we'd see seven domestic burglaries, four vehicle offences. Now I do need to stress that the vehicle offences here are the ones of the type that Josh initially had, theft of his vehicles, rather than Matt's black. Although I have noticed that um, uh, vehicle collisions are now included in vehicle offences, so perhaps Matt will, will be covered there. So even if we consider that only about 45% of crime committed is reported to the police. Ambridge, controversially, is still not suffering from an epidemic of criminal activity like, say, Leatherbridge or Midsummer, which is just down the road. Fear of crime in rural locations is much lower than in urban sites. And constabularies who've got a large rural element to their geography quite often have a rural policing plan. So they try to counteract with their rural policing plans the sort of the lack of trust that the farming community has in police. So constables, sergeants who live and work in largely large geographic spaces for scattered communities really do have a job on their hands. It isn't always helped if they're considered to be lying, adept at lying to the village through the cricket team. However, even though Sergeant Burns might be able to turn his hand to almost any specialised element of policing, perhaps he is helping raise awareness of the police in Ambridge, which could then lead to higher trust lead to higher confidence in policing, which then might have an impact on reporting of crime and reductions in the fear of crime. So when I talked through a couple of years ago, I identified three types of offender in Ambridge. And I'd like to sort of see whether these categories still stand up to what's happened in the last couple of years. And also to think about what Harrison is doing. What is Harrison doing? Okay, so Firstly, we had people who commit acts of violence against the person 
or against uh, farm animals or against the horses. And these people usually come from outside of the village. So from my archer's history, I'm thinking about Simon Pemberton, who attacked Debbie. I'm clearly thinking about Rob. I'm thinking about Matt and his fraudulent cronies fleecing the irritatingly aging of Ambridge. But we can also see these sort of the unrepentant Clive Horobin. And I think as a paper in 2017 talked about, the, the Horobins were always pinned as the outsiders of the village. But I think that Tracy is doing a really good job of, of changing that around. So the only person that I can immediately think of who caused fear in the village is Roy, who talked about his remorse for perpetrating hate crimes against Usha whilst Jill was assaulting a celebrity chef with a baked good. Nevertheless, generally, we see those who cause fear are held at arm's length from the social cohesion of Ambridge. They arrive, they disrupt, and they leave without waiting for healing to occur. And it's the outsiders who many of the rural populations in the rest of the country believe are committing the crime. But that's probably not actually the case. It probably is um, people from within side of, uh, uh, farming communities. So, do Philip and Gavin fit into this notion of, of fear, the fearful, the outsider that we need to be fearful of? They have arrived. They have disrupted, even though nobody in the village kind of knows that yet. And they'll probably leave the village whilst Kirsty's standing at the altar. Philip can be compared to Rob. He's ingratiated himself and his negative characteristics are yet to be seen. So, you know, and the same is true of Gav, although I, my feeling about Gav being manipulative and, and unpleasant is slightly borne out by the fact that, uh, you know, he's, he's a pathetic man who clearly has lost the love of a good woman. Anyway, so at, at this point, I'd like to remind you about Tim and about Tim Oakley, 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 and ask you where he is. And I'd also like to ask a question, which I hope some people will be able to answer for me. Was it Philip who came to Emma's aid when she got run off the road by Tim's mob? And that is really quite important. So. The counties around Borchester understand that modern day slavery is a problem. In Staffordshire, here, up here, you can see that the Office of the Police Crime Commissioner has asked all companies to make sure that their supply chains clean. So at the moment, only firms, companies with a turnover of £36 million have to do this which makes me wonder what Borchester Land's turnover is and why they are or not checking what's going on in their supply chain. So Harrison is a sergeant and you know I'm really not clear where he's placed what his role in, in um, Borchester uh, Borsetshire Police is but I assume that he has his level one investigation qualification. 
So he gets to interview low-level offenders. He gets to interview people about volume crime, the sort of thing that we heard about last Sunday when he spoke to Philip before Philip potentially is going to have to talk to the health and safety executive or to the National Crime Agency, depending on where this goes. So one of the things that, that Harrison asked was who bought the supplies and the materials for Blake. He also kept asking um, who took Blake, who moved Blake to Grey Gables. And those two, those two elements are really important in trying to identify um, modern slavery. So to understand what is going to happen, I'm assuming that the interviews with Blake are going to be drawn together and questions are going to be asked. And potentially, as I say, if, if something is identified as being problematic, let's cross our fingers, it'll potentially be escalated to the National Crime Agency. I also wonder if Roy is gonna have a word with Harrison at Nets, because I don't think that Roy will have the understanding to talk to let's see to talk to this organization here unseen which works on um, modern day slavery so who should Harrison be looking at next I love this picture this just fills me with joy this picture this is exactly what Harrison looked like in my head um, so last year, I, I suggested that Harrison probably should be looking at Josh. Um, the police say that many rural crimes can potentially be linked to organised crime. You start at a very low level and you build and you build and you build a bigger picture. So if we think about fly tipping, if we think about Tim again and to him enticing Ed, and we start to think about organised crime. If we think about Josh's vehicles, even before it was used in the Ram Raid, I'm still entirely unconvinced that he was buying those machines from um, a reasonable source or not. Um, and, you know, so all of those things are potentially linked to organised crime. Modern day slavery is as well. And we're talking about ideas of um, money laundering as well. So there are lots of people within the village. Josh, Josh is still one of those people within the village that I think that Harrison needs to be looking at. When I talked um, in 2018, I talked about some of the residents being, being feckless and I use this in a sort of a very tongue-in-cheek way, sort of feckless offenders in, in Ambridge. So I'm thinking specifically about the Grundies and potentially about Jazza. People who are on the periphery of crime, whose, whose activities are tolerated. Um, but people in Ambridge who are considered sort of slightly dodgy, slightly close to the wire, have very strong social bonds. They're usually quite strong, they have good relationships. Again, if we think about stopping people from offending, um, those strong relationships stopped Ed from working with Tim much more closely. Now, while we have those who are to be feared and have been shown as disruptive outsiders, and the 
feckless families who are supported by strong community bonds. The crimes of the middle class in Ambridge had often been swept aside, ignored, excused, manipulated out of existence. We have had badger killing, truck crashing, joyriding, the throwing of baked goods, I'm not going to say flapjacktivism yet, but it's going to come, don't worry. Um, they were simply trifles of middle-class criminal activity, um, but potentially that's something of the past. So while Brian's misdemeanors seem to have sunk potentially without an annoying stench, Freddie has fared less well. His offending behaviour was roundly condemned, and the portrayal of his prison stay was very recognisable to prison researchers. The only thing for me that didn't ring true was the fact that he referred to other prisoners as inmates, which um, I don't think I've ever heard. So the Archers is full of people who've changed their minds, uh, changed their lives and continue on the road from crime. We have had Sid Perks, we've seen Ed, we've seen Jazza, all of these spring to mind and now we see Freddie. So desisting from crime is shown in Ambridge. People grow out, people grow out of crime. They reinvent themselves, they believe in their new identity, and often that's initiated by the love of a good woman. So social capital is an important element to secondary persistence. And again, we can see this in the lives of both Ed and Jazza. People might have disapproved of their behavior, but the social ties that they have in Ambridge help them to remain former offenders. But people zigzag on the way, zigzag on the way out of crime, and it might only take the provocation of somebody questioning about whether you're drug dealing in um, a, a country house hotel to trigger re-offending. So at the moment, Freddie is the new poster boy for desistance. He's lucky. He has the status to enable him to make changes. With the explosion, we're moving towards Freddie um, becoming an element of tertiary desistance. And tertiary desistance is when other people in the community that you belong to stop thinking about you as an offender and start thinking of you as a kitchen porter or a hero, whether you like it or not. So what does the explosion in Ambridge mean for crime in Ambridge? Um, Freddie is struggling. Freddie's struggling with his hero. Um, and this could potentially trigger reoffending. His own labelling and his own self-esteem is having a really difficult time at the moment. And potentially that could trigger some sort of reoffending. But will the explosion mean the crashing and the breakup of an organized crime group because I do, I do genuinely believe that Philip and Gavin and Tim are all part of uh, an OCG based in Borsetshire. Uh, um, but they're only going to be brought down if uh, the, being brought down relies on the professional curiosity of Sergeant Burns and Roy actually doing something and acting on the discomfort that he is feeling at the moment. And to be entirely frank, I'm not holding my breath for either of those things. There we are. Thank you very much. Absolutely lovely, thank you.
<laughs> Lots of rounds of applause there I can see on the screen. How lovely. <laughs> yeah, but that's my mother. <laughs> Nicola, do you have anything or are, and are there any questions? So I wanted to talk to you about one thing which occurred to me about the Philip and Gavin situation and yeah. um, so I know that I mean, I didn't, I'm, God, don't know much about criminology, but the kind of psychological technique of good cop, bad cop is kind of totally kind of, it's, it's in that kind of common parlance around, you know, interrogation and things. And just the other day we heard Philip and Gav with, with one of their horses doing a kind of good cop, bad cop. And I just wondered if you, if that is to do... I just wondered if you had anything, any reflections on that in terms of interrogation and or manipulation and control? In terms of manipulation and control, I mean, it's, it's absolutely classic. It's trying to make sure that, that people um, are wrong-footed, constantly wrong-footed and questioning their own behaviour. So this is, you know, to use that phrase, it is, is gaslighting, but on a monumental scale. Um, in terms of the good cop, bad cop interrogation process um i don't know that this happens anymore but they you know the, the strategies for interviewing people are based much more on um very clear guidelines about what is allowed to happen and what isn't allowed to happen so you know from my point of view harrison has done a really interesting job there he's asked some potentially quite benign questions but that are that are potentially quite important so he sort of played it really quite sort of um close to his chest so just tell me so who gets the materials where do they come from and how and how did how did uh, blake get to gray gables so all of those things you know are potentially then going to be put together with the interviews that that harrison's colleagues because let's really hope that it wasn't harrison that was interviewing blake as well that harrison's colleagues that are, are putting together and hopefully all of that information and evidence um, and intelligence is going to make Borsetshire Police escalate this to the National Crime Agency. Mm. You could almost so hear in that scene yeah, so the, the questions were so gentle and I think me yeah. as a listener wanted the big question, like, did you do it? But of course that isn't the way that it works and he's yeah. seething and grounding and all the rest of it, which is, in, you know, excruciating to listen to. And yeah. I'm just hoping that those those cogs are wearing for Harrison and that he does take this escalator further. Yeah, and I think I think the issue is that that for so many police and crime commissioners around the country, especially um, Gloucester, Staffordshire, Warwickshire, the ones that are you know near Borsetshire, um, they they they've all had modern day slavery cases. So I would be very surprised if it wasn't in the uh, police um, police and crime commissioners' plan for mm. going forward. So yeah. he or she, you know, is is very likely to have instructed um, um, the police to be looking for this. Yeah. We've got a question. Yeah. Is that where you're going to Christine, do you want to ask your question? No. She just no, so she what she wanted to ask was well hang on. It's I've gone past it. Oh yes. 
So this is often comes up as the, the, just the portrayal of public servants is, is off. So for me, the nursing staff, for Christine, would the nurses not have red flagged it all over it? In lot, you know, would they have not have fed in safeguarding concerns? Was he, you know, there was no mention of appropriate adults, even though he did seem nervous. Like, could that not have been? I mean, like, a it could be the intelligence picture, but also it was the same in um, the primary school when the boys. You know, my mum was a primary school teacher, and if there'd been a family where someone had tried to kill someone else and it had all come out, there's no way that children would have. You know, they would have been sat on at all times just by the informal control and governmentality of public service workers. Yeah, yeah. And that, that notion of safeguarding it, it, um, is really important. Um, there are safeguarding, obviously, there are safeguarding concerns, especially within the National Health Service. But there are, there are safeguarding officers who are um, from other agencies who are put within... Um, NHS um, organisations, and I'm guessing that there's somebody else around who will know that much more clearly than I do. But I think you're right. I'm I'm surprised that it wasn't flagged. But of course, you know, we were still looking at Gavin and at Philip and at Blake, and we only heard what was going on. So we from from Gavin and Philip, so we don't know what the nurses and the police are also talking about outside of that those conversations. With them, I've had very uh, in-depth safeguarding training and um, you don't just look at the person, you look at the people around them and that's usually a really big key. So I think the behaviour that we were hearing of Gavin um, constantly texting from the hospital and things like that, yeah. you would begin to look at go back to a bit suspicious mm. and you wouldn't necessarily take it on somebody's word that they're their uncle. And mm. I mean, regardless of that, it's about who you let into the room or not. And um, that would have been something which I think the nurses would have pressed them on potentially. But yes, yeah. we don't know about the other conversations around that which are happening. Yeah, yeah. So. Charlotte, have you seen the speculation on Twitter that it's actually Joy Horville is deep, deep undercover and she's going to spring it all? I must say, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't it just be delicious? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. You know, and she, uh, yeah, I can't comment on whether she's one of my colleagues or not. <laughs> she's, she's, um, very good. I think I think you're absolutely right though both modern slavery and um, the safeguarding issues that you're talking about this is quite mainstream within within public service you know it's not this is not outlandish you know you everybody does that training everybody knows about these issues you know it's a and one of the, I mean, one of the things that is potentially interesting because there is no outbreak of COVID nineteen in in Borchester or Borsetshire at the moment, um, the safeguarding officers are still in the hospitals. Mm. So um, you know, some are, as I understand it, some of them have, have been removed from face to face contact. So uh, yeah. With that as well, would that stop Philip and Gavin going in to see Blake, and would that then mean that Blake begins to open up to the nurses some more yeah. without their constant surveillance. Yeah. I just think appropriate adult. You'd need an appropriate adult, wouldn't you? 
Yeah. He is clearly a vulnerable uh, person and a, you know, a vulnerable adult for sure. And you would, you would look at that and you, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Nicola Field is on fire today. Uh, if children can be trained to vote by parents and grandparents, can they be trained to commit crimes? Will Phoebe become a criminal on the scale of Brian, for instance? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the Cambridge study, the very famous Cambridge study, which uh, looked at criminal activity within families, did seem to suggest that there are criminal families and that, that it does, it is passed on. Um, and that you know, your social norms are entirely, well, not entirely, but very often um, drilled into you by your, by your family. So, yeah. We had so that, and that connects, that connects really neatly with Tim's paper because both pro-social and antisocial tendencies yeah. are in your networks. They're in your, both your extended family, your community, the ways in which values get um transmitted and yeah. you know that, that it's just such an interesting old business which, yes which is why um social capital is so important for desisting from crime so desistance criminal desistance is 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 just about this notion of not necessarily having in any intervention like going to prison or being on probation um, or having any intervention with with uh, the criminal justice agents system but you know just that you just grow out of it you grow out of joyriding or uh lifting yeah or shoplifting yeah. so talk, uh, picking up on that Sarah Playfair mentioned as well um county lines and there are some young people in Ambridge like George for example that could yeah. be seen as quite an easy target for that kind of activity and yeah. I'm I'm oh, in a way I'm almost waiting for that storyline to happen in Ambridge because it seems such an obvious or perhaps it's too obvious for them to go to. Yeah I mean George is absolutely spot on for county lines, Mia as well mm. um, and you know we we start to potentially if you're thinking about Mia and you're thinking about county lines and of course um, exploitation of all kinds is, is linked to county lines um, activity so there's Mia um, and this is this sort of grooming is exactly what you saw with Ed um, before he he had the um, courage to say you know no and stepping away from it I don't know how he managed to get out of that situation and did anybody remember about who it was that came to Emma's aid when she got when her car got smashed into I didn't see anything come up on the chat, but I may have missed it. Somebody jump in if they do, if they do know it. At the moment, most of the conversation on the chat is how we all want Joanna Scanlon, from no offence, to come in and bust open <laughs> the slavery racket in Ambridge, which would be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah I could see jo Joanna Scanlon as the, the head of crime in uh, Borsetshire Police. Uh, <laughs> I think she'd uh, have an amazing conversation with Harrison as well. There'd be some outrageous flirtation going on. I think she might also tell him to pull his finger out. But... That's true. <laughs> but not yeah, I can't see him lasting in her team for very long. Bear in mind that her, her team put um, you know, liquid cement into a perpetrator's mouth. I mean, come on, Harrison's not exactly... Um... <laughs> 
Oh, right. she's like hardly to see Vera. I oh, Vera in Ambridge would be amazing. Oh, we were talking, weren't we, that there was a, I think on the Facebook group, someone was saying about how there was a modern slavery of Vera and that had sharpened them up to thinking that, may, you know, seeing seeing the, the storyline emerging. Any other direct questions for Charlotte about crime, deviance? All of the stuff I know about. Anything, <laughs> any, the dark side of humanity is Charlotte's bag, so, you know. Helen and Louise are saying that next week we will be looking at um, average crime families, i.e. the Aldridges, so that they will, this will be a, a conversation we can pick up on uh, as well. Um, and I think if there aren't any other questions, it's the time to sign off. So thank you today to our very own uh, Peter Sidaris talking about voting patterns. Thank you to our, our very own Jane Tennyson for talking to us about crime. <laughs> And thank you all, as ever, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. 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 Bye.